This morning we will be in the book of Hosea, the book of Hosea chapter 1. <clears throat> the last couple of weeks my mind has been racing as I was thinking about what I might preach today and uh, so many things popped in my head, but it seems the last couple of years I cannot get out of the minor prophets, I, uh, whether it's Habakkuk or whether it's Micah and now Hosea, the Lord has been really uh, teaching me a lot. Uh, about himself and about myself through the minor prophets. I think sometimes we uh, we tend to shy away from these books because they're uh, sometimes they're tough to understand. Sometimes they're uh, some of the things they reference might be obscure. But uh, if we take the time to dig in, there's just so much truth about the Lord and so much encouragement that we can find. Uh, when you think about different prophets, uh, when the Lord called a prophet, obviously they did not have an easy uh, task put in front of them. You think about what some of the prophets of the Lord went through. Elijah, he had to run uh, for his life uh, because Jezebel was after him. You think about Jeremiah, he was thrown down into a pit. Uh, the, the scroll that he had transcribed to, his, uh, to Baruch, as they read it to the king, they cut every bit of it and burned it in the fire. That's the kind of reception that his message got. When the Lord called Isaiah and Isaiah asked him, Lord, how long do you want me to preach this message you've given me? He said, keep preaching until all of the cities are destroyed and all of the, uh, all of the land is demolished, but they're not going to listen to you. So prophets, they all had their rough road that they had to go down, but Hosea, his path, it was hard in maybe a bit different of a way. The, these other prophets, they had the message that the Lord gave them. The, they, they went to preach and they went to teach and they went to call the people to repentance. Not only did Hosea do that, but Hosea lived a sermon as well. And that's what makes his, uh, his writing so powerful as we see uh, the Lord's message to his people not only proclaimed but lived out in the life of Hosea and his family. So with, this, with that in mind, let's begin reading in Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bere, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. 
And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and we are in need of you. Lord, we are a wicked and we are a wayward people, Lord, because we are so corrupt with sin. Lord, we have sinful desires and we have sinful motives and actions and words and deeds and uh, inactions. There's so many things about us that uh, goes against who you are and what you stand for. Lord, if, if you do not save us, we have no hope. Lord, today as we look at your word, remind us of these truths. Remind us of where our hope lies and why we need you. Uh, Give us a heart to understand. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we come to Hosea chapter 1, and already this is a shocking introduction to the book. God tells Hosea that he wants him to go marry a prostitute. You think, wait a minute, this is the beginning of Hosea? There's a specific reason why God wants him to marry a prostitute because he wants Hosea's marriage and his family life to be a picture of God's relationship with his people Israel. And just to give you a a bit of a background of, of what's brought us to this point, why is God comparing Israel to a prostitute? What would prompt him to tell his, uh, his beloved prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute to display this truth? It says here in verse 1 that Hosea came on the scene in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. If you go all the way back and you think about what Brad preached on recently about the fall of mankind and how Adam and Eve sinned, they rebelled against God. God comes to the garden and God curses everything. He confronts Satan, he confronts Adam, and he confronts Eve, each one in the sin that they had done. And when speaking to the serpent, he told the serpent that the the woman's seed one day is going to crush the serpent's head, but the serpent would bruise uh, his heel. And In the moment of that fall and in the moment of that curse, there was a a kernel of hope left that one day a Savior is going to come and going to right these wrongs, going to right the failures of Adam and Eve. And as you go through Genesis, you finally come to a man named Abraham. And when Abraham, we see him, God calls him out of an idolatrous nation and tells him to uh, follow me and go to a nation that I'm going to show you, and I'm, uh, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So this, this promise of the conquering seed, it, it's, starting, it's starting to be defined a little more clearly. It's going to come from the seed of Abraham. And God tells Abraham that his descendants are going to be enslaved 
in uh, Egypt, and they would be enslaved for 400 years, but eventually they would cry out to the Lord, and the Lord would bring them out with great signs and wonders. And we know the story of how they were enslaved, and God uh, sent Moses and sends Aaron to bring them out. He sends the plagues on Egypt, defeating all of Egypt's fake gods, defeating Pharaoh, leading his people out of Egypt, and he leads them to Mount Sinai where they are going to receive the law and receive the covenant. And Scripture compares this receiving of the covenant on Mount Sinai as a marriage, as it were, of God and his people. They are coming together in covenant relationship with one another. God and his people united like a man and wife. How long did it take after this covenant coming together for Israel to be unfaithful to the Lord. It didn't take very long at all. As Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, what did they do? Where is this Moses who has went before us? Aaron says, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you bring me some gold? Bring me your earrings and your jewelry. And he gets this jewelry and melts it and forms a calf. And what do they say? Behold, Israel, your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, here's what's interesting. The the words that they use, the same words used for the true God. They're saying "This, this calf is your God, Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Tomorrow we're holding a feast to the Lord, the true Lord. So they already corrupted the truth of God. But what? Don't have any gods before me. Don't make any graven images. They already were unfaithful to the Lord. But it didn't stop there. We know the story of how as the Lord led them into the promised land, did they, did they finally get their act together and were they finally faithful after that slip up? No, it was constant, constant disobedience to the Lord. Matter of fact, in the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says that, Uh, when I was bringing you up out of uh, Egypt, were you not praying to Moloch and were you not praying to Baal? And even during this exodus, they were worshiping false gods as the Lord was delivering them. But we know how the Lord did finally bring them into, uh, into the promised land. And when they were put there, for a time, they had no king. So they had judges that the Lord would raise up at certain times to deliver them. And the, the theme when you get to this point in the book of Judges is that the, the people did what was right in their own eyes. That summed up the people of Israel in that time. And maybe that doesn't sound too bad to, uh, to you, the fact of someone doing what is right in their own eyes. But we've already learned from Scripture that Every thought and intention of the heart is only evil continually. So if people are doing what's right to them when every thought and intention of their heart is only evil continually, what kind of situation do you get in? We see this downward spiral of unfaithfulness. They start to worship false gods. They start to rebel against the Lord. And what do we see? The Lord brings an enemy to defeat them. 
Once they're defeated, they cry out to the Lord, Lord, please save us. And the Lord sends a judge to save them. Some time goes by, and finally, the people, they look, and they see these nations around them, and they see that they all have kings, and they want to be like the other nations. So they ask Samuel, Samuel, name a king to be over us. We want to be like the nations that are around us. And this distressed Samuel because he knew that the Lord was their king, and they were showing great unfaithfulness yet again. But the Lord told him, give them what they want and anoint Saul to be king. And we know the story that Saul, he was king for a very short, well, he was king for a long time, but uh, his obedience didn't last very long. And because of his disobedience and his unfaithfulness, the Lord said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to a man after my own heart. And then finally, you think, here is a man after God's own heart. Finally, the kingdom is going to be built up. The kingdom is going to be strong. The kingdom is going to be faithful to the Lord. But was that the happy ending? Unfortunately, it wasn't. Even David, a man after God's own heart, was unfaithful to the Lord in several things. Then Solomon comes on the scene. And Solomon, the wisest man on earth, wisest man the world had ever seen, and the Lord had told him that if he walked in faithfulness like David did, and David was not perfect in faithfulness, but he was faithful in repentance when he did mess up, said, if you walk like your father David did, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. But Solomon had a weakness, and his weakness was women. And he ended up marrying about a thousand different women. And many of them were from the nations that God had instructed him not to marry because of uh, the idolatry that was rampant there. And when he married them, he ended up building them shrines and altars and temples for their own gods. And because of that, God was greatly displeased. And he said, because of my love for David, I'm going to let you die in peace. But your son, I'm going to rip the kingdom away from him. And I'm going to take ten tribes and give to someone else. And I'm going to leave just Judah and Benjamin for David's seed. And that happened. Solomon's son Rehoboam became king of the southern kingdom. Meanwhile, uh, Jeroboam became king of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom just starts a downward spiral into more and more disobedience. Uh, after Jeroboam became king, they set up two golden calves in Samaria. They start worshiping Baal. They start worshiping Moloch. They start sacrificing their children uh, in the fire to Moloch. Uh, they start rejecting uh, true prophets of God, persecuting them, kicking them out. The southern kingdom was some better, but not much better. And by the time you get to Hosea, the Lord's patience has just about ran out with the northern kingdom. He said, the, my limit has come. Judgment is about to be poured out on the northern kingdom. That's the history. That's what brings us to this point. 
There, there have been nothing but unfaithfulness with God's people. God chose this people, showed them compassion, love, mercy, and grace as he brought them out of slavery. And the thanks he gets is just unfaithfulness and going after other gods instead of the Lord. So let's see what the Lord tells him to do and what the response is. In verse 2, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So Hosea's marriage is going to be a picture of God's relationship with Israel. So to demonstrate that, he tells him to go marry a prostitute. Now, that's not a very flattering picture if you're Israel. Hosea, marry a prostitute because that's going to be the picture of what my people Israel have acted like over the years. When God called Israel, it was not because they had been faithful. It was not because they were better than the people around them. It was for none of those things. In fact, listen to a couple of the things that the Lord said about Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, he tells them, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So it was not because of their strength. It was not because of their might. In Ezekiel 16, it might be one of the most uh, graphic pictures of, of God's covenant marriage relationship with Israel. And sometime you need to go this week and read Ezekiel 16. But listen to how it describes Israel in the very beginning of that passage. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of the things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were aboard on the day that you were born. So he compares them to the Canaanites, to the Amorites and the Hittites. He said, that's who you were like. You are no different than the people that I drove out before you. You are just is wicked. And he said, you were aboard. You were helpless. You were like a newborn infant just cast out. There was nothing you could do to save or help yourself. You were completely and totally dependent on me to take care of you. That's the kind of mercy and grace that God showed in choosing Israel. It wasn't because they were good. It wasn't because they were faithful. And look what happens. He tells Hosea to marry a prostitute and have children of whoredom. Why? Because the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, here's, here's what's mind-blowing. When you think of this from Israel's perspective, knowing your background, knowing what you've been brought out of, your unfaithfulness, your sin, all of these things, and brought into a covenant relationship with the Lord, why would you want to go back to that lifestyle that you've been rescued from? 
Why would you want to go back to that? Maybe in his mind, I don't know, maybe Hosea thought that when he married Gomer, maybe she would see what she had been brought out of. She would see the love and uh, provision that he gave her. Why would she go straying after they get married? Why would you go back to that? But what did she do? Well, to begin with, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Key phrase, she bore him a son. So right off the bat, they have a child together. And maybe Hosea thinks things are looking up. We're building a family. Things are looking beautiful. Maybe this is going to have a happy ending after all. But God says, I want you to name this son Jezreel. And Jezreel means God will scatter God will scatter. Each one of these names of these children has a purpose and a meaning. And what did he mean by God will scatter? He says, in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So Jehu was one of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, And God had commissioned him to destroy the house of Ahab. Remember Ahab and Jezebel, how wicked they were. Jehu did that, but then he ended up going right back to the same idolatrous practices of the, the other kings of Israel that had come before him. And because of that, because they never repented, God says, I'm going to put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. I'm going to scatter them throughout the nations. And you come to 2 Kings 17, and you see it finally happens. It says, The people of Israel, they walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. So God said, I'm going to scatter the northern kingdom among the nations, and they will be no more. And this happened during the life of Hosea, during his ministry. He saw it happen. But it didn't stop with his son, Jezreel. Look what happens in verse 6. There comes another child. It said, She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no, I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Now, notice the last time it said she conceived and bore him a son. Notice this time it said she conceived again and bore a daughter. And notice what the name of the daughter was. The name of the daughter meant no mercy. Literally, you would have said Lo-Rama, Lo-Rahama. And lo meant no mercy. And in effect, he's saying that this child is not Hosea's. These last two children don't belong to him. Look at the name of the last one. Call, her, uh, call his name uh, not my people. Can you get any more explicit than that? This child doesn't belong to me. This child is going to receive no mercy. The people are going to receive no mercy. So even though Hosea had shown mercy and grace, compassion to Gomer, she cheated on him. 
and had children with her lovers. And it said, because of this, call this child no mercy, because I'm going to have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. The Lord promised that he was going to raise up from the house of David a kingdom that would never end, and it's going to come through the house of Judah. So he would not go back on his word and completely destroy all of Israel and Judah. He's going to leave a remnant, but I'm going to destroy Israel. Said when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now this is a terrifying phrase. When he says, tell them that they are not my people, and I am not your God. When he says, I am not your God, what he's literally saying is, I am not, I am to you. Remember when God led them out of Egypt and uh, as he was sending Moses, Moses said, if they ask me who has sent me to bring them out, what do I tell them? God said, tell them I am has sent them. Tell them I am that I am. What he is literally saying here is, I am not, I am to you anymore. The covenant has been broken because of your unfaithfulness. That is the picture, and that is what Hosea and his relationship with Gomer has illustrated. The Lord and Hosea had shown nothing but goodness and grace and faithfulness to Gomer and to Israel. And what had they given in return? Unfaithfulness. They had cheated. Israel had went after other gods. They had trusted in their own strength. They had trusted in their own army. They had trusted in the pagan nations around them. They had trusted in false gods. They had trusted in everyone but the Lord who led them and delivered them and saved them from the hand of Egypt. And you come to the, the end of the account of his three children, and you think, is that the end? Is it over? You think it can't end on a worse note than that. But the Lord doesn't stop. Look what he says in verse 10. Right when you think there's no hope, he says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Wait a minute. He's just said that they're not going to be his people anymore, that he's going to have no mercy on them, that he's going to scatter the northern kingdom, punish them for their sins. But here he says that the nevertheless or yet the number of the children of Israel is going to be like the sand of the sea. He said, there's going to come a time when these people who I've said, you're not my people, they're going to be my children and I'm going to be their God and they're going to have one head. And ironically, it's the same head, uh, the same seed who's going to crush the head of Satan who is going to come. So when you come to chapter 2, and you start reading the reaction of Hosea and the reaction of the Lord, as you read through, it, it, it almost makes your head spin because you think, is this the Lord talking? 
is this Hosea talking? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's Hosea and it's the Lord talking. And you see Hosea's response and you see the Lord's response to this unfaithfulness. But before he gets to that, he ends with hope. Hope that one day he's going to have a people. He's going to be their God. They're going to be his people. And if you fast forward to the New Testament, this is applied to the church. In Romans chapter 9, when he's talking about choosing a people for himself, he said, even as he has, uh, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and those who are not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to him, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So here in Hosea at the end of chapter 1, it looks forward to a time when God has a people for himself. People that at one time did not belong to him, but he's going to choose them. He's going to bring them into covenant with himself, and he's going to take care of them. They're going to be his people. He's going to be their God. But it's so dark where we are ending in Hosea at the end of chapter 1 that you think, how could he ever get there? What is going to have to happen for this people to belong to him, for this people, uh, for him to be their God and them to be his people? And you get to chapter 2, and it's a bit like a roller coaster ride because to begin with, in verse 1 and 2, it starts off with begging and pleading. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. So it's speaking to the people of Israel like they're children, and the nation itself is the wife or the mother. It says, plead. To them, children, plead to your mother that she stop this adultery. The sad fact is the pleading did not help. God sent prophet after prophet. He sent so many messengers, and all of them were, uh, were ignored. Some of them were beaten. Some of them were killed. But he pleaded with them through his children through his people, and they did not listen. So when they didn't listen to the pleadings, he decided he was going to punish them. And look in verse 3 through 5. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and I will kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. So the Lord said, I'm going to punish them. I'm going to bring destruction on the northern kingdom. And he did. He brought Assyria. And they defeated them and took them into captivity. Tore down their houses. Burned down their villages killed their children, but the punishment did not change them. Just like the pleading did not change them, the punishment did not change them either. 
Isaiah 26 says it this way. When your judgments, Lord, come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. But when grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in the land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. When the Lord shows grace to the wicked, and sometimes punishment is a grace, sometimes discipline is a grace to stop you from going down that road, it says they don't learn righteousness. Why? Because they are wicked to the core. We are wicked to the core, and simply giving us punishment does not change us. So pleading doesn't work. Punishment doesn't work. This is like, uh, this is like a husband. You, you picture Hosea trying everything he can think of to bring his wife back. I'm going to plead with her. I'm going to beg her. Well, that doesn't work. I'm going to make her life miserable. Well, that doesn't work either. So where does he go from there? Well, in verses 6 through 7, look what he says. I'm going to hedge up her way with thorns, and I'm going to build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall, she shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. In other words, she's going, uh, Jose is going to cut off all access to uh, Gomer's lovers so that when that access is cut off, Jose, uh, Gomer will think, you know what? I keep chasing after these guys when I've got a man who loves me at home. I'm going to go back home. Unfortunately, that didn't work either, and it didn't work with Israel. Why? Because we are absolutely wicked to the core. When you read Romans 1, you see that each person on earth, it's like our hearts are idol factories. You can cut off certain idols, and guess what? Just new idols are going to spring up in their place. The Lord gives us blessing after blessing, and things that are meant to be good and perfect gifts coming down from him. And we take those good things and twist it and distort it and turn it into an idol and worship and serve the creature instead of the creator. That's what we do. We take something fun and beautiful like sports and we make it an idol. We make something wonderful like family or career into an idol. We make, uh, fill in the blank, anything we can make into an idol. Why? Because that's how wicked we are. That's why the Apostle John, his very last instruction in the book of 1 John, he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Had to tell believers to keep themselves from idols. Why? Because we're prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's who we are. We're unfaithful by our nature. And hedging up and cutting off these access to these other, other idols, we're just going to replace it with new ones. It's not football season anymore. I guess I'll replace it with basketball. <laughs> if it's not basketball, I guess I'll replace it with baseball or whatever it might be. We replace our idols, and that's what Gomer did, and that's what Israel did. 
So if pleading didn't work, if punishment didn't work, if cutting off access to her lovers or her idols didn't work, what's going to work? You get to Hosea 2, verses 14. And this is the Lord speaking. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So I'm going to allure her. I'm going to woo her. I'm going to win her back just like I did when I brought them out of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. So they had been, in their worship of the Lord, they had been meshing the worship of Baal and the worship of the Lord and had been calling the true God Baal. He said, in that day, you're not going to call me my Baal, which means my master. You're going to call me my husband. And I'm going to remove the names of the bells from her mouth, and they will be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beast of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. And I'm going to abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land, and I'm going to make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. How is he going to do that? How is this alluring? How is this wooing going to bring people back to himself after they have displayed nothing but unfaithfulness? We come to chapter 3, and we finally see the answer. We finally see the answer of how the Lord can bring back or redeem unfaithful people says, the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethak of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell without many days, without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord, to his goodness in the latter days. How does the Lord make them his people in faithfulness? How does the Lord save them and rescue them? It's not pleading It's not punishment. It's not hedging up their way. It's by redeeming them. Redeeming them. Here's the terrible reality of what happens to Gomer. These idols that she loved, these lovers that she had, that she cheated on Hosea with, guess what? They didn't love her back, and they turned on her. And she ended up becoming a slave That's what sin does. Sin offers liberation. It offers joy and fulfillment, but all it brings is slavery. Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Proverbs 5.22 says, the iniquities of wicked 
ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. So you come to Hosea 3, and Gomer has been sold as a slave. Her lovers have turned on her, and she is standing on an auction block, being sold as a slave. And what is God's response? He tells Hosea, go, buy your wife back. Buy your wife back. So Hosea goes, and he buys her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethak of barley, which is basically the barley is, uh, makes that total to be about 30 pieces of silver, which is about the common price of a slave. Gomer had been a beloved wife. Hosea no doubt loved her. They had started a family together. She was precious to him. And now she had sank so low in her sin that she is being sold as a slave. Yet God says, go buy this woman. Go love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Why? Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So how is the Lord finally going to have a people for himself, he has to purchase them. He has to purchase them from the wages of their sin that has in, uh, enslaved them. We have been bought with a price. I want you to think about this. In many ways, I don't want to make light of what Hosea went through because he went through heartache. He went through shame I'm sure he went through some ridicule as people saw the treatment he was receiving from his wife, yet he kept on uh, reaching out, showing love to her. And now, after all this unfaithfulness, he goes and he buys her back. Imagine what people would say about him, his reputation, everything. is costing him 30 pieces of silver, the equivalent, to buy her back. Is costing him all of these things to redeem his wife. And I don't want to make light of those things. They're big things. But it costs so much more to redeem us from our sins. It costs so much more. Because each one of us, according to Scripture, the wages of sin is death and an eternity in hell. One sin enough to damn us for all time, and we have a heart that is only evil continually. That's us. What kind of debt is that, and how could we ever hope to pay it? 30 pieces of silver is not going to scratch the surface of the debt that we owe. There is no way we could possibly climb out of that hole and pay for our freedom. We deserve the wrath and hatred and fury of God Almighty. But, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were not ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That is our hope, not that we'll somehow uh, 
pull our bootstraps up and somehow straighten our lives up. Our hope is that we have a Redeemer who will purchase us from the auction block of sin and death. That is our only hope. Jesus, he lived the perfect life that we have failed to live. He died the death that we deserve. He defeated our enemy, death, hell, and the grave when he rose three days later. And now he offers eternal life to all who would believe and trust in him as their only hope of salvation. That is our hope, that the precious blood of Christ is going to redeem us and purchase us from the wages of sin. I want you to think about this. If there's one thing you don't have to convince me of, it's my own sinfulness. I'm very aware. I'm very aware of my faults. And I'm very aware of how far short I fall. If if there's one doctrine I don't need to be instructed on, it's the doctrine of total depravity. I know that I am rotten to the core. My thoughts and my motives. if, If I could put on the on the screen over there, my thoughts for the last 24 hours and show them to you, I would run out of here in shame. That's me. But God, knowing every sin I had ever committed, just like Hosea knew Gomer's background, go marry a prostitute, Hosea. The Lord, he loves me knowing my background, knowing my sin, knowing my unfaithfulness. And that's astounding enough. But he also knew every sin I would commit after he called me and after he saved me. And he still offered me redeeming love and still offered forgiveness and mercy and grace. That is a love and that is a mercy that I can't even wrap my mind around. Only the Lord can love like that. And only the Lord can save and redeem from sin. He's our only hope. He's our only hope. And look what's going to happen. Said, you must dwell as mine for many days. You're not going to play the whore anymore or belong to any other man, so I will also be to you. There's finally going to be faithfulness. It says the children of Israel, they're going to dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel, they're going to return and seek the Lord their God and David, their king. David, their king, the coming king, King Jesus, the son of David. And they're going to come in fear to the Lord and in his goodness in the latter days. So what's our hope? What's hope for a wayward people? And I need hope because I'm a wayward person. Our hope is that the Lord has purchased us and we belong to him. We are not our own anymore. And because I belong to him, I have hope. Not in my own goodness And not in my own merit, but in the goodness and mercy and grace of Christ that he shed his blood for me, that I could become his son. You could become his son and daughter, adopted 
into the family of God. No more condemnation. No more condemnation. We can say with Paul that I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor powers nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He saved us when we were his enemies. He saved us when we were unfaithful. He's going to keep us now that we belong to him. We are safe and we are secure, not based on our own goodness, but based on the goodness and mercy and redemption that is found in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I come before you today and I I feel my own inadequacy because I have done so poorly in putting your faithfulness on display. Lord, because how can we even begin to scratch the surface of your goodness and your mercy and your grace? But Lord, I pray that in my weakness you would be made strong and that your word would not return to you void. I pray that if there's any here who is enslaved to sin and never trusted in Christ as their only hope, I pray that you will open their eyes to the beauty of your redeeming love found in Christ. Lord, let them turn and trust in Christ as their only hope of salvation. Lord, if there's any believer here who has, uh, who has begun to chase after other idols instead of chasing wholeheartedly after the Lord, Lord, I pray that you would convict and discipline and mold and shape them and bring them back to the fold. And Lord, I pray that during this time of reflection that we would examine ourselves 